Well, sometimes being smart can work against you. Um, and one of those realms is the realm of salvation. It, it just seems that uh, some people, the more educated they are, the more sophisticated they find themselves as philosophers and thinkers, uh, the more difficult it is for them to humble themselves and realize that actually they need faith like a child. Uh, one such person is C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the great intellects of his day, written many books, um, quoted a lot. Well, C.S. Lewis loved his own intelligence and his learning. He was a professor at Oxford University, and he considered Christianity to be beneath him. He considered it to be uh, too simplistic a faith, a kind of a, a myth for people to believe that there could be a God out there. Um, and yet he had a friend, a friend who would constantly share the gospel with him, who would argue with him about theology and philosophy. And many of you know that friend. His name is J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien would evangelize C.S. Lewis. Uh, they were in this little club together called the Inklings, where they would write things together and critique each other's work. And uh, Lewis was arrested one evening by the thought of, uh, that Tolkien had, had given him about this idea that there could be a God. And he was working through it and thinking through it. And he, he describes what happened to him that night uh, in his autobiography, uh, Surprised by Joy. Lewis writes, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen night after night, Magdalen College in, in Oxford, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second for my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He describes himself as dejected and reluctant convert. He came kicking and screaming, as it were, to the Lord. He didn't want to believe in God. He didn't want to believe that there was a God. He felt that people who did believe in God were beneath him and were uh, intellectually inferior to him. And yet, there was something in him that drew him to this faith. And at that point, he couldn't even articulate it. But I wonder if you've ever asked yourself questions of why some people are saved and some people aren't, especially if they're born into the same home or they go to the same Christian school or Christian college and they've had the same experiences. What causes some people to bow the knee and others not? Why do some people come uh, running to the Lord and others need to be dragged there as reluctant converts? Um, Maybe you've wondered this. If God wants to save me, can he save me? Or is he bound by my choices? Maybe you thought, if he can't save me, unless I choose him back, then is he really all-powerful? Or is there something that he can't do? And if so, why pray for the salvation of people that I love? Because God can't do anything about that. On the other hand, if if he can save me and whoever he wants by overruling even my own choices and free will, then why doesn't he just do that for everybody? Have you ever had any of those questions? Well, welcome to the, the doctrine of sovereign grace. 
Sovereign means that God is in control. We learned that in the Ruth series, right? That God is in control of everything, even the most minute detail. The word grace refers to the free gift of salvation that God gives us. So the doctrine of sovereign grace is the biblical doctrine which teaches that God can save whoever he wants to. Now, I just want to warn you, I don't know if you've ever, how close you've ever been to an elephant. Um, I've been very close to an elephant, and I was invited to hug the elephant. I didn't, because I'm not stupid. But um, (laughs) you don't hug elephants. But if you did try to hug an elephant, you would have to be very realistic. You could not get all of your arms around all of the elephants. You would kind of have to pick a part of the elephant and hug as much of it as you can and just be realistic about that. And in the same way, when you approach the elephantine doctrine of sovereign grace, you have to be realistic about your your short little brain and how it's not going to be able to wrap itself all the way around. But we're going to try tonight and at least uh, hug up to the, the doctrine where we can. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We will see... God revealing himself as sovereign and in control of all things, including who he saves. Now, if you are here tonight, and this is something that's new to you, or you've heard this doctrine, you've read about this doctrine, but you've never heard it from somebody who actually believes it, you are uh, in luck in that case. The Lord has brought you here for that, because um, a lot of people who disagree with this doctrine have heard it described by people who disagree with it. Um, but what I'd like to do for you tonight is show you from Scripture why it is that we teach this doctrine and that we embrace it. Um, so if you're in Luke 10, you'll remember the, in the context here, Jesus has sent out his 72 evangelists and they have returned and they were rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them and they could do miracles. And Jesus sort of gently reminds them that they are rejoicing in the lesser of two blessings that he has given them. Uh, One blessing is that, yes, I gave you the authority to heal and cast out demons, but there's a greater blessing that you can always rejoice over, and that is that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, we remember it's like a a lady who goes shopping looking for the the dress that suits her and fits her, and she finds the right dress in the right size, and when she goes to pay, she's the millionth customer, and they give her a million dollars. And when she gets home, her husband says, how was your day? And she says, it was wonderful because I found the right dress that fits exactly. And she forgets to mention the greater blessing of the million dollars. That's what's happening here with these disciples is they're so enamored with the authority that they've been given that Jesus reminds them there's a greater blessing, and that is that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In other words, you're saved. And no matter what happens to you, that is always something that you can embrace. That is always something that you can draw joy from. So the question now is, how do I get my name in the Lamb's Book of Life so that I too can be somebody who rejoices over that? And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Let me read for you uh, from Luke 10, verse 21 and following. I'll start in verse 20. Uh, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows the Son is, uh, sorry, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Just until this evening, we're going to look at three responses to sovereign grace so that you can understand God's power in salvation. Firstly, our first response needs to be the same as Jesus, to applaud sovereign grace, to accept sovereign grace, and finally to appreciate sovereign grace. So the first one, applaud sovereign grace, and this is just following the example of Christ himself. In verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced. So he says, you need to rejoice that you are saved, and then Jesus rejoices. And if you, if you ask yourself, I wonder what it is that causes Jesus to rejoice. And what is it that causes you to rejoice? Uh, a touchdown, you know, or uh, your kid accomplishing something, or you getting a raise or promotion at work, or getting some sort of recognition for something you've done. What causes you to be happy? Well, we're going to see this is what causes Jesus to rejoice. It's the one place that it says he rejoices in this way, in the Holy Spirit. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That's how he addresses God. Father, Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he's emphasizing the sovereignty of God here, that he is Lord, that he's the one in charge. In charge of what? Everything. That's what heaven and earth means. And that in that sovereignty of God, what is he thanking him for? that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and that you have revealed them to little children. And why am I rejoicing? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is what pleased you. So Jesus is rejoicing about the sovereign grace of God, that he revealed truth to some and hid it from others. So first, notice here that Jesus not only believes that God is in control of revealing and hiding, but that he rejoices in it. He's not only accepting it, he's applauding it. He is rejoicing in this doctrine. For such was your gracious will, he calls it. And some people hear about the doctrine of sovereign grace that God is in control of who he reveals truth to and who he hides it from. And their response is one of disgruntlement. They'll say something like this, that can't be. I can't believe in a God who, who chooses some and not others. Uh, or that makes it sound like we're just robots that are just pre-programmed to make a decision and God programs us and we don't even have any say. I can't believe in that. And then you kind of have to take them to the dozens and dozens of verses throughout the whole Bible that just say that over and over until eventually they reluctantly agree, okay, I see it in Scripture, but I just, I just can't bring myself to. And then they'll say something like, I'm, I'm half Arminian and half Calvinist. And I, you know, they're just, they're tr they try to come up with some sort of scenario that they're comfortable with. Jesus applauds this doctrine. He rejoices in it. There's something about it that makes him happy when he thinks about it and when he talks to God about it. And I think what it is is that it makes God so glorious. Now, uh, some bites of meat are tougher than others to chew and swallow. And probably the hardest part of this is that Jesus is actually thanking and rejoicing that God has hidden the truth from some people. And that's a very strange thing, and I'll grant you that it's strange. Hopefully I can explain it in a moment. Let me just reiterate that. Luke 10, 21. 
thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So Jesus is thanking God for exercising his almighty power to hide saving truth from some people. It's kind of weird, isn't it? You don't want to nod your head, but I know it is. It's okay. It's weird that he would thank God for hiding truth. And he's hiding him from the wise and understanding. And this is where we get a little closer to what the point actually is. It's not that he's rejoicing that God hid the truth. It's he's rejoicing that the advantage that some people think they have is not what gets you saved. That's what he's rejoicing in. Otherwise, certain people would have a privilege that other people don't have, and that privilege is that they were born into the right family, or they have the right education, or they have the right understanding, and the high enough IQ. And his point here is that the people who are great by worldly standards merit nothing when it comes to salvation. That's what he's rejoicing in. No one is saved because of their IQ. No one is saved because of the number of degrees that they have. No one is saved because of the number of languages they speak or, or how much experience they have or how respected they are in the world. In fact, Jesus is rejoicing that some of those very people are the ones that God has hidden this from. Salvation is by grace, not works, not merit. There's nothing in you that attracts salvation. It's not your privileged place in the universe. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's what Jesus is rejoicing in. By grace you've been saved through your faith. It's not your own doing. It's not your education. It's not your intelligence. It's not your ability to comprehend complex thoughts that gets you saved. It is a gift of God because it's through faith. So yes, God actually hides the truth from some people so that he gets glory instead of them getting that glory. Let me just give you a few other passages so we're not just, you never want to build a doctrine off just one verse in the Bible unless you want to start a cult, which is fine. They make a lot of money. But um, if you want to actually know the truth, you've got to look at the whole Bible, right? That's what theology is. I was joking. Nobody laughed at the cult thing. I wouldn't start a cult. But Exodus 4.21, Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Have you ever wondered when you're reading the story of Moses, what if, what if Pharaoh just taps out in the first miracle? What if he's just like, Ugh, blood in the Nile? Gross. I'm done. Get rid of the Jews. And from now on, we have, instead of the ten plagues, your flannel board is way cheaper. It's just one plague. And nothing else happened. And there's no Psalms written about it. And there's no Exodus. And there's no parting of the Red Sea. And there's no Egyptians following them. That's not what God wanted. God wanted to show all ten of the gods of Egypt that he was better than. He wanted to have the Passover instituted. He wanted to part the Red Sea and destroy the Egyptians. He wanted to provide for the people in the wilderness. And all of that would have been circumvented if Pharaoh had free will and just said, nope. In fact, you see him trying at points. Yeah, 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 let them go. And then 
God hardens his heart and he calls them back. So from Exodus 4.21, you can see God specifically says, you go do that miracle, but don't worry, it's not going to work on him. I will harden his heart. Now, I'm not saying at this point, we're not at the point yet in the sermon where this sounds like fun, a fun thing to believe. I'm at this point just showing you it's in the Bible. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came to Jesus and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. Remember? I mean, I've always, I was taught as a kid that Jesus taught in parables because stories make th- people understand things better. But then you start reading the parables, and your first reaction after every parable is like, wait, what? What does that mean? What's the mustard seed? Who's the, what's the bird? Wh- which is slave is what? The land over? Why is this guy stealing money from that guy and getting praise for it? I don't know. What's, what's going on in this parable? a dragnet of fish and an old treasure. Someone needs to explain this to me. And, she, and so they say, why do you keep teaching in these parables that nobody knows what they mean? And Jesus says, because I want to give the answer to some people, not others, so I'm speaking in code. That's what he says. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. That's why I speak in parables. So that what I'm saying is not so obvious that everyone can understand it. I don't want everyone to understand it. I want to decide. John 12, verse 37. So that was Matthew 13, verse 10. In John 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why did they not believe in Jesus even though he could do miracles? They could not. Verse 39 says, they could not believe. For, again, Isaiah said, quote from the Old Testament, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It's kind of a strange passage, that one in John 12, that's verse 39 and 40, where he quotes Isaiah and he says, this is why they couldn't believe. Isaiah prophesied that this would happen, that God would blind their eyes so that they wouldn't believe. That's why they couldn't believe, because God was blinding their eyes. Otherwise, lest they would see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would have to heal them because if they repent, I have to forgive them. And I didn't want to forgive them. So I hid it from them. And you're thinking, this is just so strange. That's okay. The more furrowed brows, the more it means you're actually listening to what I'm saying because this is strange. I'm just showing you at this point, it's there. John 12, uh, 39 and 40. You can read that again on your own time. So, so far, this is a lot of weird, bad news. So, who does God reveal the truth to then? Well, in our passage, Luke 10, 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. So, now we start getting a sense of why Jesus is happy. It's, it doesn't seem like he's drawing his joy from the fact that God has hidden the truth. He's drawing his joy from the fact that There is no advantage that a person is born with or can obtain themselves that gets them the truth, but it's God's sovereign will that gives them the truth. And so he's pitting these two groups against each other. You've hidden it from the wise and understanding, you know, the educated elite, the intelligentsia, and you've revealed it to children. 
And I know in our culture, children are like the greatest thing besides poodles, maybe. Um, and we just love children, and they're all fantastic, and they all deserve a trophy, especially yours. Um, but in most of human history, people have understood quite clearly that children don't know as much as the rest of us. They haven't been taught as much. You don't have to listen to them as much, right? Because they're not smart yet. They're not educated. So that's the point. Those that are wise and understanding, the educated, intelligent elite, versus people that everyone in Jesus' audience would admit don't know as much as everyone else. In fact, we kind of know that um, because there's that game show called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? So the premise of the show, you know, they get these experts, people with like PhDs in physics or whatever, and, and they get these experts to come, um, and then you have people who are fifth graders, and you ha put them in a game show, and you ask them questions, and what's funny is that the fifth graders almost always beat the grown-ups, and that's what makes it funny. Now, why is that funny? Why is that even a game show? Because we would assume the children know less than the adults. I think what that shows is that adults just forget a lot. Uh, but that's what makes it funny because it's, 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 it only works if you assume that the kids are supposed to know less. It would be a terrible game show if it's just like you and me go and we're the contestants and we're pitted against a bunch of astrophysicists and they ask us questions about astrophysics and then they know the answers and we don't and they win millions of dollars and we win nothing. That wouldn't be fun for anyone. But if... If the dumb one goes in and beats all the smart people, that's what makes it fun. So that's the idea, is that these little kids can do it. So that's what Jesus is saying. You, you've given the prize to the kids. We will expect the, the, these educated people to have the prize. But you took it from the educated people and you gave it to the kids. So who gets saved? People that think that they don't need God's help? People that need, think, well, I'm smart enough on my own? I, that I can reason my way to, to find truth? Or is it the people who say, I'm going to submit to the authority of God the way a child would submit to his parents? Those are the people who get saved. And that's what Jesus is rejoicing over. And what's sparking this rejoicing? That the 72 that he sent out were not the elite. It's not like he went to their top seminary and said, I want your, your, your best students in your, of the Pharisees and you know, in the theology classes and and the professors, and I'm going to send them out. No, he's sending out tax collectors and fishermen and just a hodgepodge of people, and they're having success in the ministry. And Jesus says, praise God that this is how he works. That just because Peter and James and John and Andrew were born to fishermen, and they were born in a little rural Galilean village. And Galileans were known for not being educated. That's why everyone's surprised they can speak many languages when they have the miraculous gift of tongues next to. They're just Galileans. They're uneducated. And yet God thinks, well, it doesn't matter what family you're born into, what village you're born into, what career you can do. I can still save you and use you mightily and give you success. Because why? Because I'm in charge. And none of this depends on you. It all depends on me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see the same concept, but it's softened a little bit. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 1, 19. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers, says to the Corinthian church, pretend that's you. 
consider your calling. Consider who's saved here. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, that's you, in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, that's you, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So in 1 Corinthians 1, 19 and following, he says three times, well, four times really, you were called, consider your calling. Why? God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. And he gives us the reason, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. There will be nobody in heaven who gets to say, I am a self-made man. I'm the one person who actually deserves to be here. Nobody gets to say that. Anyone who even thinks that isn't saved. You can't be saved and think that you're, you're worthy of salvation. Those two things don't go together because the only people that are saved are the people that are humble enough to say, I need a savior, so please forgive me. Please save me. And I have found this in my own ministry, and I'm sure you have too over the years as you try to share the gospel with people. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody and they just they kind of like look down on you? Like, it's so cute that you believe this Jesus stuff. Do you ever leave your tooth under the pillow for the tooth fairy too? Do you ever do that? Like, do you believe in tooth fairies and, and bunnies, Easter bunnies with this whole Jesus thing? I mean, people think that we're crazy for believing this. We believe, you believe in creation? You don't believe in all the science that I know? And then you feel a little bit sheepish. I don't know, I just believe what the Bible says. Oh, that's so cute of you that you just believe what the Bible says. That's okay, we're the weak ones. We're not powerful, we're not noble, we're, we're despised by the world, we're, we're, we're the weak, we're the foolish. And he keeps saying, in the world's eyes, we're not actually foolish, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But according to the world, we're the foolish ones. According to the world, we're the weak ones. And that's okay. We're not competing with them. We're not competing with anyone. We just want to be with Jesus. So this is actually a glorious doctrine. This is why Jesus is applauding it. And so should you. It should give you tremendous hope. This is what it means. It doesn't matter how dumb you are. You can go to heaven. Seriously, that's a good thing. Because a lot of people think like, man, you've got to know all this theology. You've got to know a lot of Bible. And you've got to know... It doesn't matter. No, you can be dumb. It's okay. You can know nothing. All you need to know is Jesus loves you. He's perfect. You're not. He died on the cross instead of you. Just ask him to save you, and he does. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It's pretty simple. That's why children can be saved. Because to be saved is very, very easy. Because it's not up to you. It's up to God. So this is not a scary doctrine. It doesn't matter how little Bible you know. It doesn't matter how bad your past is, how wicked your past is. It doesn't matter how disgusting your present is. You can repent of all of it tonight and be saved. There's no course you have to go on. 
There's really nothing you have to understand except what you already know in your heart, that you're a sinner, that you're guilty. But that God is great and he, he loves you and he's merciful and he'll forgive you. And so Jesus says, this is fantastic. This is making me so happy. And he rejoices in the spirit that these people who thought that they're big stuff, they're not the ones that God's blessing. Look who he's blessing, just these humble people, these fishermen and tax collectors. So that should, that should cause you to not want to be one of the people who thinks, I know the Bible so well and I know so much theology and that's how I know I'm going to heaven. Well, it's good to know theology. I mean, I need it for my job. I think you need it for your life too. The more theology you know, the, more you're, the, the fewer mistakes you're going to make in life and the more, the more you're going to be able to do things. But it's, it's not helping you be saved. That's all just taken care of by Jesus on the cross. So no one deserves grace. No one deserves or earns merit. And no one qualifies for salvation. But God gives us to us, to us anyway. So that's what Jesus is applauding, and that's why the doctrine of sovereign grace is such a wonderful doctrine. But it still leaves some questions unanswered, right? Because if God is choosing who gets saved, and he's giving even the, the, the weak the ability to be saved, then why doesn't he just give that to everybody? Why doesn't he just make everybody see it? This brings us to our second point. We do need to accept sovereign grace. In verse 22, Jesus goes on. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So you see in, in verse 22, it's something interesting. There's, there's only two groups of people. There's only, let's say it this way, there's... There's only two possibilities of knowing the Father. Okay? You only know the Father if you are the Son, Jesus, because that's what he says. Um, no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's the second group. So you know, you can only know the Father, nobody knows the Father except the Son, except for Jesus and one other group of people. Those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So again, at this point, I'm just showing you this is in the Bible. This is something Jesus said. That if you want to know the Father, the only way you can know the Father, unless you're already Jesus, which you're not, is if you're in the group those the Son chooses to reveal the Father to. So simple question. Who chooses who gets to know the Father? The Son. Let me ask it another way. Do you choose if you get to know the Father? No. So if I ask you if you have free will, it's a trick question. Of course you have free will. You can do whatever you want. Right? You can choose God. You can reject God. That's, that's a true statement. But let me ask you this. If you can do everything you want, anything you want at any time, and you've got free will, why do you drive a car? Why don't you just fly everywhere like Superman? I mean, he uses his free will way better than you do. He just flies there. Why don't you do that? The birds fly. What's the answer? 
Well, I can't do it. But you just told me that you have free will. So why not? Why, why can't you? Why not? Because free will means you can make a choice within your nature. You can choose to do what humans could do. You can't choose to fly because humans can't fly. Just like my dog can't choose to meow. Dogs can choose to do whatever they want within their nature. They can run in circles. They can sniff themselves. They can, you know, dig under things. They can jump a little bit. They can bark. They can't fly. They can't do calculus. Neither can I, but that's not the point. You can only choose to do what's in your nature. So when I say God chooses you for salvation, you don't choose him. You can't choose him because you're born in sin. You don't have the equipment to choose him. I'm not saying you don't have free will. I'm saying you have free will within your nature, but your nature is not one who can choose God. You need a new nature. You need a new nature. Guess who gives out new natures? God, not you. So you see how these things can work together? As long as you understand what the terms actually mean. So what does it boil down to? It boils down to a question of authority. Who is in charge? And Jesus says in verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And those people are saved are the ones that the Son chooses to. So why does Jesus get to choose who knows what the Father is? Because Jesus is in charge. Back to sovereignty. That's why it's called sovereign grace. It's a matter of authority. All things, including salvation, have been handed over to me, Jesus says. So I've met people when I talk about this and I get excited about it, and then they'll, they'll say something like, I just can't believe in a God who would choose some and not all. So at that point, I, I try to clarify with them. What do you mean you can't believe in a God who wouldn't do something? Well, the God I believe in, he loves the world. You know, for God to love the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him can be, you know, and they start throwing verses like that. God loves the world. He's the savior of all mankind, especially those. So then I say, okay, I can't believe in a God who would choose some and not all. That statement itself is a statement of authority. I'm deciding who I can believe in. I'm in charge of who I believe in. I'm in charge of what God can do. I'm in charge of deciding what's fair and what's not. I'm in charge of deciding what fits better with what I think God should do. And so then you just have to kind of point out to the person, I don't mind if you say, I can't believe in a God who does this, but then you have to also say, Because I don't believe the Bible. Because it's in the Bible. So if you don't believe the Bible, well, then that's fine. Well, then we have two different um, authority bases. But my authority base is the Bible. So that's what I'm going to argue from. So if you don't believe the Bible, then you don't have to believe in a God who chooses. If you believe the Bible, you do have to believe in a God who chooses because the Bible says God chooses. You're like, wait a minute, what about foreknowledge? Come back on Sunday because First Peter's all about that. That's the sermon on Sunday. See how these things work together? So that's applauding sovereign grace like Jesus does, rejoicing it, accepting sovereign grace because it's in the Bible. It's a matter of authority. We have to. But thirdly, you can actually get to the point where you appreciate sovereign grace. You can appreciate it. Verse 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So he says to these disciples, you guys are so blessed. Blessed means to be happy, to be privileged, to be in a state of favor. A secular term would say, lucky you. Lucky you that you get to be part of this. There were prophets like Isaiah who didn't see this. There were kings like David who didn't see what you see. The Messiah here doing miracles. You 12 fishermen and tax collectors and hodgepodge oddballs, you get to see something that they didn't. Is it because they chose not to see it? No, it's because the timing wasn't right. God didn't allow it yet. But now it's here and you get to see it. I always think of how lucky we are. We live in the best time in the world, ever, in the history of the world. Because, I mean, you, sometimes you think it would be cool to live in Bible times. No, they didn't know what we know. We know way more about God than they do. We know more about Jesus than they do. You see the disciples all the time totally confused. We've got commentaries. They didn't have commentaries. They didn't even have, Peter didn't even have First Peter yet. He hadn't written it. It hadn't been revealed. And speaking of First Peter, First Peter 1.10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So what Peter's saying in First Peter 10 and following, and we'll get there eventually, we'll have sermons on it, is that the prophets who prophesied about this grace, this salvation, this gospel, they searched and inquired carefully. They were studying their own writings trying to figure it out. And then it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. You can imagine God having that little conversation with Jeremiah like, Jeremiah, I don't understand. Is this talking about the church? Is this talking about Israel? Are these 70 years literal? Are they figurative? And God kind of taps him in the shoulder and says, don't worry, just write it down. You're not going to understand this. But when you're dead, those people will understand it. And he's like, okay, and he just writes it. Like John writes the book of Revelation. It's like, I don't know what's going on yet. Not my job. That's Clint's job to figure out when he preaches Revelation. You know, it's like, but that's what's happening here. The prophets themselves didn't always understand what they were writing. They longed to look into it. You know who else longed to look into it? Angels. Angels are watching this. They're hearing this stuff unfold. They don't know the future. They just know they've got the... And the book of Revelation gets written. The angels read it. The angel's the one that delivers it. He gets back to heaven. He's like, I delivered this thing, Lord. What does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean what I just told John? God says, you'll see. It's not for you. It's for them. For the people with the New Testament. That's who it's for. It's for us. We who have the Holy Spirit. So that's pretty cool. So it's a, it's a privilege. So we need to appreciate the sovereign grace of God electing to do things. It's not only salvation. It's who gets the revelation, who understands the revelation, who gets to look into the revelation. He hides the truth from some. He reveals the truth to others. He hides some of it through time. It just wasn't there yet. He hides some of it because it's not available. For some of it, it's available and they still don't understand it. So whoever, if you're somebody who lives in the time period, who has a Bible, it's translated into a language, you go to a church that teaches the Bible, you can start understanding the Bible 
You're like the luckiest people that have ever lived. Keep saying lucky, you know what I mean. Blessed. You are the most privileged ever in the history of the world that you have all of this truth. Well, what about the other people? Yeah, don't worry about them. You just be thankful that you have what you have. God will take care of the others. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Every good gift, everything that you have is by sovereign grace. Nothing that you have is what is deserved by you. Everything that you have is a gift from God. So, once you learn to not focus on and fixate on the people in the world who are not you, I can't accept what God's given me because what about those people? Once you move past that, you kind of get to this point where you realize, well, how do I... What, what if I'm not in that group? What if I'm not in the group that gets to understand this? Who gets to see this? What if I'm, to use a word that the Bible doesn't use, non-elect? What if I'm non-elect? What if I'm just outside that group? So this, and I think I said in one of the sermons I preached last week, I mentioned this, and I'll probably say it again in the first Peter sermon. This is a very, very important point. If you want to be saved, that means... God made you want to be saved. Because nobody wants to be saved on their own. We're all born in sin, with the sin nature. That's what that means. Can a leopard change his spots? No. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? No. That's what those verses mean. You have a nature that you can't change. You have to have a new heart. God says in Ezekiel, I will take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. He takes all the responsibility for it. So if you want to be saved, not only may you be saved, not only can you be saved, but you are more than likely in the process of being saved. Because if you want to be saved, you can be saved. That's what all those verses mean. Anyone that flips to a verse that says, but the Bible says you must repent, but the Bible says you must believe, but the Bible says you must choose Jesus. I'm like, yeah. So why doesn't everybody do that? Why, wouldn't, why do people not choose heaven over hell? Because they can't. So all of those verses that tell you what to do all make sense when you realize I'm doing them because I suddenly want to do them. So he gets all the glory for that. Not, I'm doing them because I'm good. I always have the hypothetical question, what about my evil twin brother? I don't have an evil twin brother, but for the sake of the argument, let's add an evil twin brother. We have the same genes and we have the same upbringing and the same everything and he's an unbeliever. Ultimately, it boils down to me, if you just keep asking questions, but why? But why did you choose? Why did you understand? It's going to boil down to me saying, I just had a softer heart than he did. Okay, why? Well, I just, I just responded rightly, and he didn't. Why? No, I understood the gospel, and he didn't. Why? I believed the gospel, and he didn't. Why? Why? There must, at some point, why? And your answer is always going to boil down to me saying, because I'm good and he's bad. Or it's going to be, we were both bad, but God revealed it to me and didn't reveal it to him. 
It's always going to be one of those two. So your gospel always gets down to who gets the credit for people being saved. Is it God or is it the merit in the person? And this is what makes it such a tricky doctrine. It's easier for us to understand the merit in the person. It's way easier for us to understand. Some people go to hell because they didn't respond to the gospel. Some people go to heaven because they did respond to the gospel. And so those people deserve it. But then what you're saying is that these people that chose heaven deserve it. They deserve heaven. Nobody deserves heaven. So it's so much easier for us to understand, yeah, bad people end up bad because they made bad decisions and it's their fault. I ended up good because I made good decisions. And that's my, oh, no, wait. Bible says none of those things. Bible says God gets the glory. So that's the doctrine of sovereign grace. I mean, if it's still confusing, and it should be, it means you're paying attention. We have a few minutes for Q&A, and then on Sunday we are back into this topic in First Peter when we talk about foreknowledge. Applaud sovereign grace, accept sovereign grace, appreciate sovereign grace. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice because you are sovereign over all things, and that is our hope, that you can override our stubbornness and our sin. You can grant us illumination to understand. You can grant us a soft heart conviction of sin. And so we pray for those things, Lord. We pray that you would work in our hearts, in our lives, to make us more like Christ, even today. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. Q&A. Yes, Brandon. Do it. Ooh. I'm not going to answer that yet. Give me your second part. Is this like the advanced quiz or something that I've stumbled into? That's a good question. It's going to be hard to answer. Let me start start with the first one. Okay, so uh, the question was, is testing God bad? Yes, Um, depending on what you mean by that. So there's there's one place where God commands us to test him. Uh, That's in Malachi, where he says, test me in this. You give financially and see if I am able to give you more than you gave. Test me. Give as much as you want and see if you can out, outdo me. So that's the book of Malachi. But it's, I wouldn't use that as like uh, a temptation of God. I think it, he's using a rhetoric there. His point is, you know, you test yourself. See how much faith you have there. Do it and I'll come through. Um, and then you have Jesus and Satan where Satan says, you know, throw yourself off here and the angels will catch you. Um, Well, Psalm 91 says that the angels would catch him uh, if he fell. So Satan's basically just calling him to invoke a scripture, a messianic text, that was true. And if Jesus had fell off or jumped off the temple, the angels would have caught him because that's not how he was supposed to die. He was supposed to die on the cross. But Jesus answers and says that scripture says you shall not test the Lord your God. And I forget the scripture he quotes, but it's in Deuteronomy shall not test the Lord your God. So that, that's the command that Jesus is living by. Don't test God. Don't presume on his grace. Um, and then you've got this passage in James that says that God is not tempted, nor does he tempt. So God does not tempt, nor is he tempted by anything. So you can't test him anyway. Um, but how to synthesize that with the second part of your question, how does small faith, just phrase it again, Yeah. 
figure how Oh, okay. So if you ask for something big and tangible, like I need a raise or I need a better job, and you expect it to happen, is that a good thing or are you testing God? Is that kind of question? Okay, good question. Um, I don't think I don't think expect is the best word to use. When we pray for something, even in faith, we always submit it to God's will. So we say, just like Jesus did in the Gethsemane, where he said. Um, take this cup, the meaning the cup of suffering I'm about to go through from me, but not thy will, not my will, but thine be done. So everything we pray is not my will, but thine be done. So anything I pray, I'm hoping is in line with God's will, but if it's not, obviously I don't want it then. I only want God's will. Um, but if I want something like I need a raise or financial provision, what I suggest people do is instead of you coming up with the solution and praying for that, you go to God with the problem and pray for that. Because if, if the problem is, for example, I don't have enough money, and I think the solution is I need a better job, he might think the solution is that someone in my family dies and leaves me a lot of money. <laughs> That's easier. Or he might think the solution is, I'm just, you know, he might think the solution is that people in the church come around me and provide for me. Or he might think the solution is that, no, I just get another job and work even harder because I'm setting an example for my kids then or something like that. So don't come up with a solution and expect God to do that. Rather, you can expect God to do whatever he promises in his word. And he promises to provide for you. So that's what I expect him to do. And I will sometimes in my prayers saying, I sometimes say, Lord, I look forward to see how you work this out. You know, I know you're going to do it because you promise. I only pray those things if I know he promises he's going to do them. But I don't know what that's going to look like always. I might have suggestions and I'm going to get up and do things like apply or apply for a job, whatever it is. But I'm going to ask him to reveal to me how he's going to fulfill that. Does that make sense? Okay. You're not testing him at that point. You're just praying according to his revealed will. Good. Deb. Passover sacrifice was a was a male was a a male lamb. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Why the guilt offerings were female, but the Passover lamb was male. Yeah, I have no idea. That's a great question. I don't know. I. Why would the guilt offerings be female? I mean, the only thing I can think of is if you, if you look at the, the stipulation of all the sacrifices throughout the book of Leviticus, um, there's a diversity to the sacrifices because if there wasn't, there would be an extinction. <laughs> if every sacrifice had to be a male goat, there would be no more goats eventually. You know? So sometimes it's a goat, sometimes it's a lamb, sometimes it's an ox, sometimes it's male, sometimes it's female, sometimes it's a dove. And that's just, there was a lot of sacrifices going on. And so it might, that would be off the top of my head, my guess. But I don't, I don't know if there's like a symbolic reason for the guilt offering being female, except that females are more guilty than males. Oh, no, wait. No, that's not in the Bible, but <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, no. Yes, Haley. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I mentioned that God wanted to harden Pharaoh's heart for all ten of the plagues because he wanted to show his supremacy over the ten gods of Egypt. 
So that's a long answer, and I have a whole sermon on that, um, maybe even two, and I think one in the Exodus series that's on the app, so you can go look at that. Um, but basically, it's a really cool study. If you look at the anim- each animal, uh, or e- each plague is related to a type of Egyptian deity. So the god, um, I think you pronounce it Hekt, H-E-K-T, is the frog god. Um, and then there's like, and the Nile was a god. They worshipped the Nile, so that's the first one. And then, you know, then the frogs come out, um, and then the next, there's, you know, there's a fly god, and there's a fertility god, and there's a livestock god, and all these things um, are somehow connected. Not each animal, but the, like the, the darkness is that they worshipped Ra, which is the god of the sun, um, and stuff like that. And then the firstborn came down to, well, they worshipped the Pharaoh. They believed the Pharaoh was a god as well, and that his son was the next god. Um, so then there's that firstborn philosophy, the, the, the deity, that kind of thing. So anyway, that's the short answer. But in, the, in that sermon, I go through each of the Egyptian gods. Any commentary on uh, Exodus will usually have that list for you too. There's a lot of, uh, Egypt is the country that's been the most excavated by archaeologists. So we just have like tons of, cool evidence from biblical times about how they worshipped and and that kind of thing so so yeah it's a pretty cool thing to see good there was one other and then we're done yeah rick you must have read um visitor's guide to hell i'll sign it for you Oh, that's such a great question. I didn't put that in the book. Yeah, let me just repeat that. Um, so since there are degrees of hell, uh, um, of punishment in hell, is it possible that the reason God um, hides the truth from some is to make them less accountable so that there's less punishment for them? I've never thought of that before. That's a really good insight. I, th- I absolutely think that that could be the case. Um, because, you know, we looked at a couple of weeks ago where Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin um, and Bethsaida, because if Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, if they had seen the things that you had seen, they would have repented. And then it's kind of like, but why, why didn't they see that then? Well, they were guilty and they needed to be punished. But this group of people will be punished even more because they've had more of the light. Um, so it could just be that there's a, a type of mercy happening there. I'll have to give that some more thought, but it's it's an interesting thought.